Welcome to the final episode of Now That's What I Call E-Commerce Gold Special Compilation. This is the end of season one. It's been fantastic. And if you've been a listener on my journey in season one, on our journey in season one, thank you very much. And we're moving in January to season two. We've got some incredible guests lined up. So please, if you haven't already, visit the ecom.gold website and leave your email. And we'll be sure to update you with playbooks as well as episode drops. You will not want to miss it. But coming up in this episode, it's an epic compilation of brilliant guests, including Daniel from Rewind, Jack from Duradry, Sarah from HG Performance Creative, Ron from Obvi, Matt from Huron, Dave from Polypet Products, and Alexa from Triple Whale. A jam-packed episode, an hour of listening pleasure, brought to you by Rewind, the Shopify app that backs up your store and gives you peace of mind for absolutely pennies. Please do install it if you haven't already. And Vixer, the Shopify agency that's currently offering an exclusive deal package for merchants who want to move to Shopify Plus by February. You save about $3,000 if you do it through Vixer. Alexa, can you tell us like some of the things that you've learned from your exposure to all of that good triple well data? Oh my God, so many things. Okay, the average TikTok CPM right now is below $2. The average Facebook CPM right now is like $25. Um, small to medium sized businesses are the ones who are growing and scaling on TikTok the fastest, but it comes with the caveat that um, you have to invest more in creative production. So the actual assets and the creative that you're making have to be more engaging, etc. So what we're seeing is that these smaller and or more fresh businesses are taking their advertising team that was responsible for making Facebook creative before and instead investing that into the content necessary to scale and thrive on TikTok. Um, and they're scaling and thriving on TikTok. The big businesses that have been heavy spenders on Facebook for a long time have experienced significantly less cost volatility and algorithmic volatility. Um, and so while they have been impacted by the past year's worth of changes, they're still plugging and chugging and not investing in TikTok much. So what that means is that if you're a small to medium-sized business or you're a big business but and you have right now the ability to invest in the human capital necessary to success, succeed on TikTok you should get on top of it because it's growing very quickly. Um, I would say also another thing that we're noticing is that as Facebook, well, as in-platform retargeting has absolutely dwindled to near null in efficacy, folks are ramping up their Google ad spend and, and you know using their uh, brand keywords um, to the utmost ability with Google ad spend. So definitely ramp that up if you aren't investing in it now. Um, and make sure nobody's bidding on your, make sure your competitors aren't bidding on your keywords and work to outbid them. And then lastly, um, if you're sending garbage email marketing emails because you haven't invested in them for the past couple years, now's your time to fix it. Um, I say this with all the love in my heart, but I'm subscribed to nearly every D2C brand's email marketing. And if you send me a 10% off discount code every day, I'm never going to action on it. That is not a CTA. That is just a frustration. And I've probably flagged you as spam at this point. Um, so make sure that you are using your email and SMS marketing not to irritate people, but instead to close them if they are stuck in your funnel somewhere. Thanks, Alexa, um, for sharing those insights. So up next, it is Matt from Huron. Uh, he also has a co-founder called Matt, so there's a little bit of confusion there. But I wanted to know, Matt, um, why and how have you been able to be so successful manufacturing your product in the United States? So we were able to kind of 
fast track ourselves to some of the best and brightest minds on the manufacturing front, just based on his experience in the category. You know, I think one of the, you know, some of the benefits of working domestically, um, A, it's much easier to go to the partner's facility um, and see how production's running or to meet with folks IRL and talk about business growth and whatnot. Um, we truly look at our contract manufacturers as partners, not just vendors. You know, I like to say that like, please don't ever refer to us as a client, nor will we ever call you a vendor. Um, we truly believe in the element of partnership because without our manufacturing partners, we would have no products, right? So they're an integral part of our broader operation. Um, and yeah, it just allows us to be a little bit closer to what's happening, uh, you know, obviously over the past two plus years with COVID, there's certainly been some um, some challenges that the industry has faced holistically, um, whether it's on the supply chain front or shipping or freight and whatnot. But, you know, I think that's something that, you know, we've, we've all kind of uh, thought universally in this category. Um, so yeah, nothing more than to say like, you know, I think our relationships here were the strongest. So that's where we, where we decided to ultimately manufacture the product. And Shopify have just obviously made a big play this week uh, around international markets, introducing things like uh, automated translations and compliance for companies looking to expand internationally. If you were to expand internationally, do you think that you would still manufacture in the US and ship out from there and land goods wherever they're needed? Or would you try and find somewhere more local, do you think, that made more logistical sense? How would you approach that? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good, um, you know, thought piece. Quite frankly, I haven't uh, dug in too, too much there. Uh, you know, I think for us, international is certainly a car that's on the table. Um, again, I think it's more of a timing piece. You know, when is the right time for us? I think at the, uh, at the start, we would probably continue to manufacture domestically just to make sure that consistency of product is there. Um, you know, we've spent countless hours, months, years, quite frankly, um, putting bullet, sweat, and tears into the product quality and understanding like exactly how every formulation is supposed to be experienced by the end consumer. Um, so we to make sure that that level of consistency uh, is on par with you know our expectations. So rather than going to find an entirely new set of contract manufacturing partners, we would probably rely on the existing base and kind of uh, explore international from there. But, you know, it's Who's to say in a few years when maybe we are international and have a broader, uh, you know, exposure footprint globally that maybe we we look to explore other manufacturers. I feel like when anything is made in the US, whenever you see that, especially we're in the UK here, but it still has the same effect. It has a sort of um, an additional value to it just simply because it was made in the US. I don't want to call it a cool factor. But that's what it feels like when you see like this was manufactured in the USA. It does seem to have some kind of quality stigma attached to it, which um, I wonder if there's a play there that you could uh, sort of play on that and 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 bake that into the margin to make it more realistic to ship halfway across the world. Yeah, end up doing. yeah, totally. And I, I know there's, you know, a number of partners in and around the Shopify ecosystem where, you know, kind of offsets from the shipping costs. Maybe you're asking your customers um, globally to pay a little bit more in terms of number of products that you're ordering, building a bigger basket size to help kind of make that um, shipping line item a little bit more palatable. Uh, but yeah, quite frankly, like we're only kind of scratching the surface on the international discussion. It's not um, an immediate term act, but uh, could be in the next few months or years. Who knows? Yeah. 
Well, we wish you all the best with that, Matt. And thanks again for sharing that episode. You can listen to that full episode uh, by logging onto the ecom.gold website and finding the Matt Huron episode. So up next is Daniel from Rewind, one of the show sponsors. Daniel has had a uh, huge career in the software space, selling a company for uh, a large sum of money and now working with Rewind to help build out their uh, solutions. And there's some new solutions coming in 2023, which I can't tell you about yet, but uh, watch this space. So Daniel, um, look, one thing I've always been interested to understand is the build versus buy mentality why buy something when you can build it and why build something when you can buy it what are your thoughts on that it's a it's a big question i think i think i can go back to my days at at an e-commerce startup um and we were we had a a legacy uh, e-commerce platform that we built in-house um and and we were going through this exact conversation of yeah it wasn't a variation of the one you built in scotland was it just (laughs) pumped up a little bit yeah that was it on steroids yeah (laughs) no no that would that would have been great but no no this was and they they got some venture funding and all this kind of stuff but um unfortunately like the mentality of some of the folks there were like we need to own this we need to like it needs to be ours um this is like this is an asset of our business just like our stock or our warehouse or or those things um rather than a cost center and um i i think i think what some businesses fail to to focus on is like what what's that core capability what's what are they very good at and for a, a retailer like that's i don't know merchandising products uh um marketing branding um those kind of things like if there's something outside of that wheelhouse software development like in most cases like they shouldn't be doing that like do they want to be a software company or do they want to be a retailer um and i think unfortunately at the the retail i was at like they 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 had they didn't know what they wanted to be like they they think they were trying to build their own warehouse software for instance and, and some crazy things like this ultimately like they sold for some ridiculous like 10 million dollars or something so it's a huge loss um and i i think i've seen in the industry generally people move away from that mentality like they they realize like if it's not a core capability of our business or it's not our competitive advantage or it's not something that we can like monetize or um or get like uh, yeah competitive advantage against someone else in the space like don't do it and and really like could a could a retailer build a better platform than shopify that scales and that's extensible and no i don't think so i think there are probably some like things around the edges that maybe 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 there's there's some ip that could be um a competitive advantage for them for them but i even struggle to that and not to spend too much time on this subject in in the case of this online retailer it was a a lingerie company and the founder had this idea that uh, he wanted to uh come up for a new with a new way of of sizing bras um so so he built he invested a huge amount in like all of this like these these dummies and like a new standard for um for like uh, measuring women's busts and, and finding the bra that, that fit them properly in special measuring tapes and all this kind of stuff. But yeah, again, this was the same problem again. Like, was that their core capability? Was that a competitive advantage? Like, no, they were trying to reinvent the, the, the industry there. And like, it, 
if it succeeded, it would have been huge, but like th- there was no way that the trajectory they're on there could succeed. So yeah, I think it's about focusing on like your core capability. And for a company like Rewind, like it's backups, like we've invested a hundred percent in that, but like we haven't built our own like customer service platform or sales platform or uh, marketing tools or uh, like all of these things, like it's just a no brainer. Outsource it if it's not your core capability or competitive advantage. Jack, how is um, social advertising, but advertising in general, been for your business recently? Um, okay, so so it's super tricky after iOS fourteen point five for many reasons. Um, it's difficult for channels to attribute, which makes it difficult for us to measure, um, and it also makes it difficult for them to optimize for the conversion goal, right? So I would say first, the first thing that I would say is that um, I don't pay attention to in-platform data uh, unless like the only, the, the only thing is when it's very, very directional, let's say you have a campaign on, on Facebook, it's a, you know, CPA of 50 and then it went to CPA of 200. Okay. You know, I'll pay attention to that. But generally speaking, I do not pay attention to that because we all know what happened. Um, and even when using an attribution tool, you, I take it with a grain of salt. I like to do lift tests to actually see, like keeping everything stable and then testing stuff and see what actually moves the needle. Um, and so far, I think that Facebook and, and, and TikTok are mostly um awareness channels at this point in the sense of yes you do get conversion conversions from them but they lost so much data that it's better to see them just as almost like display kind of like expand um and then you need a lot of bottom of the funnel places to 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 catch that traffic right and one of the best places is google at least for our business that's better that's that's very problem solution oriented right um amazon is also great because you know people go to amazon when they are ready to buy so they're very bottom of the funnel and i think that for awareness um ctv is working great so ctv then i would say middle of the funnel facebook tiktok and then bottom of the funnel google that's what i think uh um at least for us is working best now and just to dig into google seo are you writing articles are you writing problem-based articles with keywords and ranking for those are you doing ppc and just paying for your top keywords what what's your tactics around google yeah so so google on the performance side i think that's that's working great i think that google uh with pmax is doing a great job so if you don't have a Pmax campaign, you have to launch one. It's it's stupid not to have one. Dig in, dig into that because that's quite new, isn't it? Pmax. Pmax is relatively new. So basically, um, Google had smart shopping, and if I'm not mistaken, smart shopping was a mix of shopping and 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 display, and then Pmax is shopping, display, and search. That's if I'm not mistaken, and, and apologies for for my ignorance in this subject. 
But basically, Google is saying, hey, guys, we are going to find your customer through all our uh, uh, network and any type of ad that we support. We are going to figure out how much of each type of ad we're going to push and where to get that user. Um, so it's more like a black box. It's very machine learning driven. They ask you to upload some assets, some videos, photos, uh, uh, titles, whatnot. And then they classify those as performing great or, or, or average or very bad. So you can replace those assets. And that's the way you optimize those campaigns. But Facebook, I mean, Google is doing most of the of the lift. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So up next, we have Ron from Obvi. Obvi is an explosively fast growing brand. And I was interested to understand a bit more about, well, actually, Ron, can you tell us a bit more about how you are uh, maturing as a brand and um, focusing more on retention of customers as well as customer acquisition? We are a very market for tomorrow company, right? Um, and and acquisition is talked about more than retention and and Acquisitions talked about more than lifetime value, but that's how you grow a business. Now going into what you can call more mature years of our business, right? Going into, all right, next year will be our fourth year, right? We're no longer startup, right? Um, and so we need to become a little bit more tactical in our approach and, and more long-term thinking. So it's exactly what you said is trying to build brand equity um, outside of licensing and, and celebrity and stuff like that, I think the other ways for us to, to explore that is um, really educating our customer with more than email and SMS. Um, and what I mean by that is like when you really understand kind of just your customer or your kind of um, person who's buying, you have to almost let them know why they're buying something, but also why they need to keep taking it, right? I think we tell them, we do a great job why they, need, why they need to buy something. We need to do a, a deeper job in, hey, are you taking this enough? Are you consistently taking this? Or is it changing your life? Like going a little bit deeper. So kind of building out our customer experience to be what the word means, experience, right? Understanding, you know, uh, the people. And, and I think that requires a deeper study, uh, a deeper um, uh, piece and to build out of, of people who will, actually talk to our customers more. So I think for us, we're just looking at it as like, we've acquired a great amount now. Now let's see if we can actually strike people's hearts again. Um, because uh, along the way, we kind of put that in, in, you know, kind of pack that away in the closet. In terms of um, if if Ash, for example, we, we know how tactical he is. If he was to hit an absolute gold mine and uh, just, just, absolutely smash it on, on a new ad or a new creative or a new platform and came and said, look, I, I need to scale this up. I need to scale this up really, really quickly. And we need to spend every penny we've got. Are you, are you flexible enough to be able to make those adjustments and make those bets, uh, in, in your, in your, um, kind of, uh, current cash situation? Are you able to just go, right. Okay. 200% your budget tomorrow and let's go for this. Is that yeah. still as liquid as you are? Like, do you have that flexibility? Like what's the process there in terms of reallocating budgets internally? If, if something's working really well. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're, I think because we're so small where it requires us to be nimble, which is actually 
allows you to kind of be very flexible. So flexibility is probably the number one reason we can do so many different things. Um, at the same time, flexibility is also the biggest con to the business because you can easily throw off something like your budget or your forecast or your model when you do things like that, right? And I think we've learned that when we do something that kind of like haphazard, we are not learning enough about the quality of the customer. Are we getting the right person? Is this person going to stick around even, right? Um, and so I think we are still able to go, yes, 200% the budget tomorrow. However, we are asking a lot more questions of whether or not we should do it. And until we get answers to those questions, me or Ash will, will kind of dig deep to see if we can at least get a qualitative truth to what we're doing instead of doing it because it's going to do, it's going to give us a vanity number that for the short term seems really good. Up next, it's Caleb from Haven talking to us about why they went down the Kickstarter route. Uh, so we have pre-sold through 2020, 2021, and 2022 just on our website. Um, and anytime we were pre-selling, we were just trying to be as clear as possible, which is still kind of wild to me that it worked. Where it's like, here's a product, it's you know 150, and then it was 200, and then it was 250 dollars uh, US dollars, and we were just listing it and then being very clear, like this is a pre-order. It's not delivering for six plus months. Um, we'll keep you up to date. Uh, we've done this before. And then the first email they would get would be the order confirmation and be like, Hey, thanks for buying. Um, just to clarify, this is a pre-sale. You're not getting the product right away. Here's the timeline. Here's what to expect from us. Uh, and then as soon as we had information, we would start emailing people. And sometimes we were kind of delayed on that. And sometimes we weren't, but, um, yeah, over the last several years, we've just sold like hundreds of thousands of dollars of bags. And we're like, that's really cool. Um, no one knows that. And that's one of the biggest benefits to Kickstarter is like, it's all very public. Um, unless you're following me on Twitter, I'm generally pretty open about like our sales and like what's happening. Um, but Twitter is a very like public place to be like, look, like lots of people gave us lots of money and that's cool. And we haven't gotten a ton of press outside of, you know, the morning chalk up and a few podcasts here and there and no, no like big names or anything. So like that could be something to help kind of bolster that. Um, and the, yeah, I think the big thing was like, let's, let's make this one a little bit more public and then let's try to really drive it, um, forward and get a lot of pledges and get a lot of cash flowing through there to show it as kind of like a, a larger public success, I guess. It's kind of how I'm we so thought about it. I'm just Again, because I did have a question that I forgot to ask, yeah. and you just Jump reminded in. me of it. So, so you were pre-selling these bags on your website. So, hang on. Mm -hmm. So, just just to summarize, you you've got a, a <laughs> sample for a thousand dollars, which is yeah, mental. And then and now, yeah. <laughs> not not happy with that. You're then selling it to customers, saying, "Do you know what? But you can't have it for six months. You're gonna have to buy it now, though. I know you've never these, and people are buying it. So, my first question is, where are these unicorn customers? Because <laughs> I, yeah, <laughs> you seem to be the only one that can find these people. Um, and yeah. yeah, so one, how did you, how did you, were you advertising to them? Like, where, who are these mm. people? How did you find these people? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I made a deal with the devil, to be honest. <laughs> My soul is locked up. No. Um, <laughs> 
We, uh, yeah, the very first pre-sale, uh, I think we had like posted some stuff on Instagram and captured a couple of emails and then just kind of went about it organically, I think. And then in 2021, when we started the second pre-sale, I was like, let's try Facebook ads. And I spent like $250. And because we were so bootstrapped, that was like a large amount of money for us. Like, ah, 250. Are, are we all in on this, guys? <laughs> um and so we spent 250 and it came back great. It worked for us. We're like, ah, shit, like people bought the bag. Like, this is great. We made money. And um, I talked to a friend who had a successful company. I was like, what do we do next? And he's like, what if you just spend some more? And I was like, that's pretty genius, man. And so <laughs> we spent $500. Yeah. And it worked. And that was great. And, who, are you, who are you targeting though? Who are you, who are you targeting? Like, did you have a funnel? Did you have landing pages set up? Like what, you know, we're talking tactical no. DTC work. Talking about minute changes, A/B testing, multivariate test, multiple landing pages, personalization, <laughs> you know. And you're t- you're telling me you chuck 250 quid in the machine to get some sales, you know? It's all good. Yeah, like that's what, what, pretty much what we did. Uh, I took a course from um, there's a big agency called Common Thread Co. in the yes. DCC world. Fantastic, <clears throat> and they yes, great and great people. And I'd been following them thanks to Twitter. And uh, took their course through, I think it's called admission and took their course on how to run ads. And then I just followed everything that they said what to do. So there was some like um, narrowing down and some targeting, but also a lot of it um, that was in, you know, 21, a couple of years ago, which it changes wildly. Um, But I think some of that's still the same where it was just kind of like, hey, set up these things, but mostly like let Facebook do what Facebook does it kind of knows how to get it to the right people who will purchase, especially once you get one or two. And so it wasn't super hard. Also, that was, <laughs> you're going to get a kick out of this. One, one ad, one photo, and we ran the shit out of that. Like I spent, I think like $150,000 in ads on this one photo ad. And it was a very simple ad. It was a picture of a messy bag on the left side and our bag on the right side. And it said, your bag, our bag. And we just spent and we got like five to 10 X ROAS on that for like a year and a half. Holy shit. Whatever. Yeah. Static image, wild. right? Just a static image. Just a static image. Yep. <laughs> One image. Didn't, I think I changed the copy a, a couple of times. Uh, but yeah, outside of that, that's kind of how we found people and then just communicated really clearly about what it was. And, uh, and I think that was kind of like, you know, again, thinking about things in stepwise and like, all right, you know, let's do this. Is it going to work? Let's do this. Is it going to work? That was kind of the next thing. It was like, all right, let's start ads. Like, will people buy it? Because if not, we don't know what to do. Um, And then people did. And we're like, all right, are we actually earning a a proper return on it? Like, then we are. Okay, that's great. And are people willing to wait for it? They are. Holy crap. Like, okay, that's another signal to us that like people are willing to wait six plus months and pay $200 for a gym bag feel pretty it. damn good about the problem we're solving right now. You should do. It's a big problem to solve and uh, I can't wait until I can get my hands on a Haven bag. Next up it is Dave from Pet Poly Products CEO. And uh, I wanted to understand, Dave, how do you hold yourself accountable to your investors uh, whilst growing the marketing team? And how did you keep uh, any imposter syndrome at bay? Yeah, we we said, so, I, I you know, aside from the, targets that I set from the formula. So what, so what I do is every quarter I would set targets for customer volume, for AOV, for buyer frequency. And then that would map to the revenue goal that the owners would give me. 
the way that I, I don't know. It's a really good question. Finn. I don't know if I've ever thought about how I hold myself accountable. Uh, my team really drives me. You know, I don't want to let them down. I, I always think about, I wanted, I wanted to be the type of leader that I always wanted. And I couldn't stand when somebody would pressure me when I, they, when they would pressure me, but I didn't have clear expectations and I didn't have the freedom to execute against that pressure. Right. So that drove me a lot. Um, one-to-ones with the CEO drives you a lot because you like week to week, you're marching towards this goal and you want to come in and you want to show progress. But I also got really lucky and we had a chief of, we had a chief of staff who's now a really great friend of mine. His name's Spencer Matthews. Uh, him and I developed a really close relationship and he was like, he's the CEO's right-hand man. So he could, you know, give me a lot of insight, provide a, a sounding board for me, almost like him and I would have these like daily, like not therapy sessions, but like we would process things out loud in a safe space and break down a lot of like our frameworks and formulas and things that we were using. Um, and that helped me a lot with the imposter syndrome. Um, you know, cause as we were, as we got, you know, I'd helped businesses go from zero to 250, 250,000. And then like 250,000 to like 4 million. I helped an info product company go from 4 million to 20 million, but I had never been past 20. So for me, like I was doing what I knew how to do until we got to 20 million. And then when we started to get past 20 million, that's when the imposter syndrome kicked in. And a lot of like, when I think about uh, when you hear me or see me tweet, like, did we, did we really do the work? Or did we ride the wave? It's because a lot of that scale felt like we were riding the wave. Like no matter what we did, I mean, at one point I had an MER of like 15 to one, <laughs> you know, like, and, and, and a lot of it too, is there, there was a, there was a, a wholesale side of the business that was still kind of direct consumer, meaning like we would sell to practitioners, practitioners would sell direct to a customer. So it was just kind of like another sales channel. We had a sales, we, we assembled a sales team that would go out and sell these guys. So the way that this thing just freaking took off from like five to 30 felt like we were riding a wave. And I literally Finn, felt like some days I could do my best to try and stop it and still not stop it. So I don't know if that, does that answer your question? It does indeed. Yeah. And it leads me into another question, which is, um, as a business goes that quick, grows that quickly, and I've never been in a business as it's growing that quickly, but I have worked alongside a business much in the same way as an agency would as a business mm-hmm. is growing that quickly. What I witnessed outside looking in was the um, interdepartmental breakdowns when one department would do great, warehouse and logistics would suffer. Mm-hmm. When warehouse and logistics were doing great, marketing had pressure. Uh-huh. And that kind of... Um, ever moving dynamic was something that they, the, this particular company, it caused so much stress because yeah. this, the CEO, I won't name any names. He was a very stressful person. <laughs> he wore his emotions on his sleeve. And so was very, very, very um, involved in the business emotionally. But from your perspective in that fast growth company as a marketing leader, how did you work with the other teams um, to kind of stay aligned and did you experience any issues or challenges in that growing pain that you were you know, part of um, that you can think and remember back to that you could maybe share with us? Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll start sort of with the end and say I, we weren't successful in that. 
I mean, towards the end, as the company was selling, uh, it broke down and there were a lot of fights. And, and, and in fact, as I've stepped into this CEO slot at Polypet, and now I'm in, you know, I'm responsible for finance and operations and, you know, customer support. And, you know, we've got a, like a really small team, but I'm driving all of those things. I want to go back and apologize to those people. <laughs> but, but also I will say, Finn, you know, before I got into this, I worked inside organizations. I know, I understand uh, how important it is to have a tight-knit executive team. If anybody hasn't read Five Dysfunctions of a Team, please go read it. Uh, Patrick Lincioni, if you haven't read The Advantage, go read that. Um, but I will say I got, I got lucky in that for most of that journey, the person that was really driving operations and finance was the CEO. And I was close with, with him. And then the, our, our chief of staff was over a lot of the other areas. So we, we sort of formed this triad. We would meet every day and we would just, at the end of the day, we would just debrief our problems and our issues. And, 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 and then, so between us, we were really tight knit where I had to work with was with, with my directors and my directors teaming up cross departmentally with customer support with the director of operations. And you don't know how many times I bought pizza for our shipping team because we had in-house fulfillment. You know, I would, I would, we would get towards the end of the month and we would be off target a little bit. And I would, I would do the math and I would say, if we increase buyer frequency this month from 1.1 to 1.3, we're going to hit our revenue target. Let's run a sale. Let's go. And then we're emailing before we've talked to customer support, before we've talked, before we've told shipping, next thing you know, <laughs> Shipping is staying late. They have to skip lunch. So it, we just tried to be good human beings when we would do that, man. Like I would work with my directors to work cross departmentally. We did some some nights where marketing team would stay late and help ship. Um, you know, even when we were in the thirty million dollar range and we had a you know a nice in house fulfillment team, we would buy them lunch. We we would just try to be good human beings. But I think like in the beginning, I was from a, like an executive level, I was really lucky. Now, as we grew past 30 million and we had a VP of sales and we had a VP of ops and we changed CEOs. We had a, we had a completely different, a new CEO came in. He was very operationally minded. So everything was, you know, not everything was uh, just it slowed down and everything was very calculated and, and, uh, and he also had never done this before. He had never been a CEO. He had never really led a, an organization. So he didn't understand the value of an executive team. And, you know, he started to pick sides and he formed his own triad um, or his own like triangle of, of influence. And then that, you know, and then from there, our executive team sort of fell apart. And um, maybe I'm being a little too transparent, which I tend to do at times, but uh, that was a big problem there at the end as we were selling and, so, yeah, yeah. Have a close knit, be very close knit with your executive team at every level in the hierarchy of the organization. That's what I would say. If there's like a tactical takeaway for somebody who's an owner and building a business, when you bring when you when you install that level under you, whatever it is, make sure they are as close as they possibly can be. And I don't mean they don't. I don't mean that they always get along because conflict is the most healthy thing you can have. But like conflict with no resolution, conflict with no safety and to be able to share, you know, you really should have conflict is what I'm trying to say. Right. But from the director level, the manager level, the specialist level, every level across the organization and then departmental depart interdepartmentally, they need to think of themselves as a team. And finally it's Sarah and Sarah, can you just take us through the NLP 
strategies that you use with brands? Yes, I will. I will tell you guys exactly how I do this. Because again, it's interesting because I will give people the full process and roster. And oftentimes people are like, can you just do it for us? <laughs> Which is fine. Yes, I can. That's what my agency does. Um, <clears throat> often it's difficult, I think, for people to pull out what we are seeing because I've been doing this for 10 years. I've been reading a ton of psychology studies because I'm weird. I just go on Google Scholar and just read crap tons of weird studies because I'm weird like that. <clears throat> but when we go in and do the actual NLP research, so NLP is natural language processing. This was a term, again, I didn't know anything about this until earlier this year, but it's a data scientist, like a data analysis term. But what you're basically doing is analyzing the natural language of what people say or what people write. So we're taking all of these comments and reviews down um, as many as we can possibly get. Often I will go to places like Reddit to get it because Redditors are very serious about like how they present their stories. They're very open. They're very empathetic, honest people on Reddit. Sometimes you'll find some things on there that you would never get from a review or a comment or anywhere else. So we're pulling down all of this text-based stuff. And then we're throwing it into basically, like I said, an Excel spreadsheet is the way we used to do it. Now I have kind of an automated way to do it where we'll just throw it into the actual processor and it will pull down a whole bunch of these different emotional words. So I have built basically what's called a corpus. It's just a giant long list of terms that relate to each other. So if I start seeing the word, for instance, frustrated, if I see a lot of frustrated coming out in the comments, then I will take it back. We'll throw it into the actual analyzer and it will pair it with different words to try and make sure that frustrated is the actual sentiment that these customers are feeling. Because sometimes they'll say frustrated, but they mean aggravated or they'll say frustrated and they mean like sad, you know? The interesting part about humans is oftentimes we'll say stuff that we don't actually mean or the words that we have for specific things are different. They have different definitions than what other people define them as, which is why communication is such an issue in the world. <laughs> it's because we all have different definitions for things and it's very difficult for us to figure out, is your definition the same as my definition, especially when we're talking too quickly to each other? So it's very important when you pull down all of this research to double check and make sure so I have this giant long list of words that will compare it to all of the words and make sure that frustrated is indeed the correct sentiment. And then we can take that and actually apply it to ads. So we can go in and use this to create copy that speaks to frustration. And because we know frustration is a valid feeling for this particular market set, we can also pair it with imagery that shows frustration. Now, sometimes this gets difficult. For instance, if you have, if you come up with some sort of a word or emotion that's difficult to show on a face, um, like offended. Offended is a very difficult facial, like how do you show offended in an, in an image without showing two people, right? And this is where it, com it comes down to good creative strategy and just understanding psychology. So we can pair good images, the correct images with the actual correct copy. And that's kind of where the magic happens. Where the magic happens, that's exactly right, Sarah. Thank you very much for bringing your magic to the show. And you can listen to her episode and any of the episodes that you heard here today by finding them on the ecom.gold website. They are also available on Apple and Apple Podcasts as well as Spotify. We will be back after the holidays in the new year with season two of e-commerce gold. We have some incredible guests and I cannot wait for them to share their knowledge and insights with you, my friends, e-commerce people. 
special final thank you for this season one to rewind the application that backs up your shopify store if you don't have it installed what are you playing at you really should it is a safety net that you cannot afford not to have in place uh big thanks to vixer the shopify agency that has supported us through season one and a shout out to peach fuzz.co an email marketing freelancer who is looking for clients moving in to the new year so please do reach out to tabs uh, if you need any email marketing 